me again to the book of Genesis, this time to Genesis chapter 14. Genesis chapter 14. As we come to our second sermon entitled, A Lot of Trouble. We're going to begin reading in verse 14, we're going to, I mean chapter 14, we're going to begin in verse 1, we're going to read through verse 16, verses 1 through 16. I do not know how to say a lot of these names, so just just be aware of that. We'll stumble over them and do the best we can. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Elasar, Shedeleomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is, Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is, the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Shedeleomer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Shedeleomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim and Ashtaroth Karnaim, the Zuzim and Ham, the Emim and Sheva Kiriathim, and the Horites in their hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran, on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is, Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites, and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hezazan Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is, Zoar, went out, and they joined battle in the valley of Sidim, with Shedeleomer king of Elam, Tidal king of Goim, Amraphel king of Shinar, and Ariok king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah, and all their provisions, and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions, and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and of Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. Aren't you glad I didn't ask you to read that? (laughs) That was tough. Let me explain what is happening here in this passage. Put simply, there is one king, King Shedderlaomer. I'm going to call him King C. I hope that's okay. I'm going to call him King C. All right? But he is the king of Elam. And at this point in history, this king wields a great deal of power over this region. All of the other kingdoms represented here, and there's eight other kings and kingdoms mentioned in this passage, all of them have been subservient to King C of Elam. 
they are what is called vassal states. Everybody say vassal states. Thank you. That is, these are states and kings over them who pay homage to and pay taxes to the king of Elam. And in return, the king of Elam promises to not come and destroy them. Got it? We good? In Genesis 14, five kings, each from a different vassal state, have joined together to rebel against the king of Elam. We are told that they had served King C for 12 years. They stopped serving him on the 13th year, which probably means, among other things, they didn't pay their homage, they did not pay their taxes to him. And on the 14th year, King C is on the move with retribution. He brings with him three other kings from three other vassal states who are still loyal to him. And they come with their fighting men to wreak havoc on these kingdoms who have chosen to rebel. Now, the reason that this little war in world history is so important as to be included in our Bibles is that it concerns someone we know. Because included in this war is the king of Sodom. And we know someone who lives in Sodom, don't we? We know Lot. In verse 12, we now see, chapter 14, verse 12, that Lot is living in Sodom. This morning he was headed that direction. He was moving into the vicinity. But by chapter 14, verse 12, he is now in Sodom. And so what happens in this war has consequences for Lot and his family. The king of Elam and those who were with him come against these rebelling kingdoms and they fight a battle at a place called the Valley of Sedim, which is at the, the Dead Sea. The battle overwhelmingly goes to King Sea, the king of Elam, and those with him. We're told that the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, two of the rebelling kings, that they flee. We're told that there are these tar pits, these bitumen pits, and that there's a large number of them all around this area. And as the troops begin to flee away, they're, they're falling into these pits. In the end, Sodom and Gomorrah are captured by the enemy and their possessions are taken away. They had refused to pay taxes, so the king of Elam has come and he has taken much, much more from them. And we're told that included among what King C of Elam took from them was Lot and his possessions. By the time we get to verse 13, Lot is in captivity to the king of Elam. And Lot has lost all of his possessions. They've been taken from him. He's lost everything, including his own freedom. Verse 16 tells us that other people were taken, including women. In verse 13, a a man who had escaped and not been taken captive comes to Abram and tells him what has happened. Abram then gathers the men of his own house. We're told that there were 318 of them who had been trained for battle. That They join with some allies of Abram who live nearby, these local allies, and together they go off to rescue those who were taken. We are told that it was when Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive that he decided to do this. Abram and his allies come against the enemy by night. 
They use some sort of military strategy in which they divide up their forces in order to gain an advantage. And ultimately, they win the battle and begin driving the enemy army away to the north. And the people and the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah that had been taken were rescued. Now, that's a very brief overview of what happened. I want to now try and and serve us by drawing five lessons that I see from this passage. Five lessons for us and our Christian life that I believe are taught in these verses. First, and we're going to spend just a moment on this one, but I think it's worth pointing out, is that there is such a thing as a just war. It is an old argument that says that Christians are to be a people of peace, And that because we are to be a people of peace, it is inappropriate for Christians to fight in any battles, no matter what the cause. Yet here we find Abram taking up arms against the king of Elam to rescue his kinsmen. Moreover, we are told that Abram already had trained men in his household in case such a day would arise. In fact, the passage even hints at the fact that Abram seems to have had some military skill because it seems to place him as the one who is orchestrating this attack at night and dividing up his troops in such a way as to have the advantage. And so he seemed to have a knack for this. There is no indication that Abram was a man who enjoyed violence. There is no indication that Abram was a man who was often in battle, but he was also not a pacifist. King sees plundering of Sodom and Gomorrah and kidnapping these people was a a wicked act. Abram's cause in seeking to rescue his nephew was was just. And so as Ecclesiastes 3.8 says, there is a time for all things, including a time for war. Now, having said that, let me be very clear. Christians are never to use war or violence in expanding or defending the kingdom of God. While on this earth there might be righteous reasons to go to war, the kingdom of God must never be one of them. We do not win people to Christ at the edge of a sword. When pagan governments place Christians in prison cells, or even burn Christians at the stake, we are not to respond by storming palaces or by burning government buildings. Rather, we spread the kingdom of God through sacrifice and the laying down of our lives. We proclaim the truth and we do so with a willingness to die for it. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Never Did Jesus tell any of His people to take up arms in the building of His church? And we never should. But, as we see here, in our earthly kingdoms, there is such a thing as a just war. We could talk much more on that subject, but that's not the subject of tonight's sermon, so we're going to move on. But it is here, so I brought it up. Second lesson. We should also learn from this passage just how quickly our circumstances can change. This morning I charged us not to set our hope on the uncertainty of riches. And riches are uncertain. 
Our circumstances today may not be our circumstances tomorrow. At the end of chapter 13, Lot is wealthy. In the middle of chapter 14, he's lost everything. Perhaps this incident in Lot's life was one way that God was seeking to wean him off of his love of material wealth, teaching him to find security in his Maker. We've seen something of this kind of great material loss even recently, as many people, perhaps some in our church and others in our nation, have been greatly affected by this financial crisis that's hit in the last couple of years, and many have lost a lot. Last week, I heard a, a guy call into a radio show. He talked about how just a little over a year ago, he had a good job. Things seemed to be going really well. He and his wife decided to buy dirt bikes for their older children. They added thousands of dollars to their debt because it seemed that with his job, he would be able to pay off these bikes in a, in a short amount of time. And then things went downhill and he was let go from his job. He said now the family was fighting to pay their mortgage, much less most of their other bills. The counselors that were talking to him on this radio show were telling him that it, this, it was time to sell the dirt bikes, that they were a debt he didn't need to be paying. And uh, it, they were telling him it's time to get into survival mode. Um, he didn't like that. He was having a very tough time coming to grips with the fact that his circumstances had changed, and they had changed quickly, and they had changed drastically. Reminds us of Job. Remember how quickly Job lost everything. One day he has all his children, the next day he has none. Remember that how one day he had his health, and the next day he was covered in boils from head to toe. We do not know what losses may be around the corner. We do not know what health difficulties could strike us tomorrow. We do not know whether the changes that are coming into our lives will be for the better or for the worse. But we do know that change is coming because change is always coming. Remember Nebuchadnezzar. How one minute he's surveying his kingdom, right? Boasting in all that he has and all that he is. And another minute, he's insane, eating grass like an ox. His hair is growing as long as eagle's feathers. His fingernails as long as bird's claws. Now that was a dramatic moment in history, especially in his life. God was doing something unique there. But I think we see more and more in our culture the threat that many of us who have our minds today may not have our minds later. Our circumstances will change. We could have a hurricane come through this year that brings unimaginable havoc to Rocky Mount. Or there could be some great breakthrough that brings a new prosperity to our area. Perhaps a new business that comes and creates hundreds or even thousands of jobs. We do not know what tomorrow holds. And therefore, if you and I are to remain at peace and steadfast through the ebbs and the flows of life, we must be anchored to something that is steady. We must be anchored to a rock. As the scripture I read this morning says, Do not set your hope on the uncertainty of riches. Hope in God. He is the same yesterday. He is the same today. And He will be the same forever. His mercy does not cease. 
His wisdom will never come to an end. Whatever tomorrow may bring, we can face it with confidence. We can face it with hope. We can face it with happiness if we are resting in the arms of a sovereign God. Not one sparrow will fall to the ground apart from my Father's will. So friends, because our circumstances can change and will change, we need to entrust ourselves to God and God alone and find our comfort there. Every other foundation is a sandy foundation that will be swept away. The third lesson that we learn from this passage is our duty to care for our kinsmen. Our duty to care for our kinsmen. This theme has already shown up. It begins in chapter 13, or we see it in chapter 13. Abram says to Lot in verse 8 of chapter 13, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Literally in the Hebrew, it's for we are brothers. Here in chapter 14, verse 14, we read, When Abram heard that his kinsman, again literally his brother, had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men. The Bible affirms the duties of families to care for their own. In doing this, we are a picture of our God who cares for His family. Just as He loves His Son, and just as the Son loves the Father, so the love that they have for one another is to be seen in us and our relationships within our families. The Father's love for His children, the Son's love for His bride should be evident in the way we love our families. You see, we have a God-centered duty to care for our kinsmen. Proverbs 17, 17. A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. 1 Timothy 5.8 But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So here we have Lot, who was a relative of Abram's and for a while was a member of his own household. And as we have already seen, Lot failed to treat Abram with respect. Lot has failed to treat Abram with honor. He took the better land for himself. He he acted foolishly in going and living in Sodom. Abram might very well have said, he made his bed, I'm going to let him lie in it. But that's not how Abram responded. Instead, Abram put himself and men of his household in danger in order to care for and rescue his nephew. He acted in love. Abram followed the golden rule, do to others as you would have them do to you. He acted graciously towards Lot, and he felt an obligation to do so because this was his kinsman. And so in Abram we have a picture of how God treats those of his own household. When one of God's children goes astray, finds themselves in a mess, God does not leave them in their misery. God does not leave us in our captivity. He goes after the one sheep that has strayed, and He rejoices when He brings it back to the fold. Remember how Joseph's brothers had treated him. 
Remember how they had thrown him into the pit and then sold him into slavery, telling their father that he was dead. And yet after they had treated Joseph so badly, when they were in great need because of the famine in the land, Joseph was quick to come to the rescue and provide for his family, his kinsmen. He did not hold their sins against them, but he loved them and he cared for them and he blessed them. And that's exactly how God treats us. That though we have sinned against him, though we have wronged him, though he would be just and right to say, if that's how you will treat me, I will let you suffer in your sins. When you wander off and get yourself in a mess, I'll let you stay there. But that is not how God treats us. He forgives us our sins. He meets our needs. He actually finds joy in blessing us. Just as Joseph found joy in blessing his family. And this is how you and I should live in our families. We should be quick to care for one another, quick to forgive, quick to sacrifice and to show love. And this principle that we see here, the way Abram runs to the rescue of Lot, isn't just a principle that applies to our physical kinsmen, but it also applies to our spiritual kinsmen. For there is a bond that is stronger than blood. It is the bond of the Spirit of God. We have spiritual brothers and sisters. We have been brought into a spiritual family. And that same kind of kinship should bring in us a desire to love and care for one another. This morning I quoted from Galatians 6.10. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Just as God is glorified in the care that family members show to one another, so He is glorified in the way Christian brothers and sisters care for one another. We could look around this room for a moment, see our brothers and sisters in Christ. I wonder, are we committed to this kind of care for one another? There is nothing more dishonoring than a child of God who is in a real mess and the rest of the family of God is ignoring them and letting them stay there with no help. The prophet said of Old Testament Israel that they were refusing to care for their needy. They were refusing to care for their poor. They were refusing to care for the oppressed among them and in doing so, they were blaspheming the name of God because that is not the way God has treated us. There is not a single child of God for whom God has not come to us and met our deepest needs. There are no black sheep in the family of God. There are no Christians who somehow get overlooked by His fatherly care. There are no Christians who for some reason get pushed to the outside. God's attention and God's love and God's grace are not given to some of His children while others are outcasts. No, our God is such that He loves each and every one of His children and He will provide for them and He meets us in our needs. And if that's who our God is, how are we supposed to represent Him in this world? I ask you, who are the people in our church? Who are our spiritual kinsmen who right now need rescue? Who are our spiritual kinsmen who need help 
Who are those in our church who are quick to be overlooked despite the heavy, difficult situations they are dealing with? Who is it that God might have you to be ministering to in this particular season of your life and their life? There is a fourth lesson. The fourth lesson is this. The importance of being prepared. We've already mentioned that Abram does not appear to have been a man who loved violence or to have been regularly involved in wars. And yet it is important to notice that he and these 318 men had been trained for war. It specifically says that these were trained men, that these were men who were prepared, who were ready to act if this need came upon them. You may know that the motto of the Boy Scouts is what? You know, be prepared, right? Well, that is a message that we find in the Scriptures. We find it in several places, but most clearly, Titus 3.1 says, Be ready for every good work. Be ready. Be ready for whatever good work God has coming your way. Whatever it is He is going to bring to you tomorrow, whatever it is He's going to call you to do, whatever issue or challenge He's going to bring into your path, be ready for it. Be prepared for it. We are to be constantly training ourselves as good soldiers of Jesus Christ to be ready for whatever is coming. We are to be teaching our hearts how to be steadfast in faith, not to be all wishy-washy and stormy, but consistent and strong. We are to be feeding ourselves daily on the Word of God. We are to be constant in prayer. We are to be training ourselves not to get too entangled in the things of this world. And in these ways, we are to be preparing ourselves because we don't know what God might call us to do tomorrow. But we want to be ready. We want to be trained men and trained women. Ephesians 6 probably speaks the most about this when we're told that that Christians are to be ready for spiritual battle by putting on what? The full armor of God, right? Are you wearing the belt of truth? Are you well established in those doctrines that will help you to fight whatever spiritual battles come in your way? Are you wearing the breastplate of righteousness? That is, you will find it very hard to fight well for the things of God and to fight well for the spiritual well-being of yourself and those you love if you're entangled in some sin. You will be vulnerable there. You won't have your breastplate. Are you wearing the helmet of salvation? Are you able to fight the battles that come with the assurance of victory, the sure hope that God is going to bring you to the last day with sin and death laying dead at your feet? Is that hope driving you? Are you carrying the shield of faith? Have you learned to wield well the sword, which is your Bible? These are what it means for us to be trained men and women. This is what it means for us to be prepared and ready for every good work. Is this you? Of those things I just mentioned, where are you weakest? Where do you need most training? 
Are you a sloppy swordsman? Are you unsure how to wield the weapon of the Scriptures? Is your belt of truth loose because you have a slim grasp on the most important truths in the world? Is your shield of faith broken because you're given to anxiety and doubt? We need to be constantly asking ourselves, am I trained and ready for whatever is coming? Husbands, are our wives trained and ready for whatever is coming? Parents, are our children trained and ready for whatever is coming? Are we teaching one another how to be prepared? How to be fully dressed in the armor of God? If a young man or young woman leaves this church to go to college, are we sending them out well-trained and ready for whatever might happen at that college? Whatever teaching they might hear, whatever group of students might come into their paths, are they well trained? I haven't mentioned the shoes yet. It's because they're particularly important. Do you remember what Paul says about the shoes that we're to wear as well dressed, well prepared Christians? In Ephesians 6, he says this Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Paul says that there's one particular part of the armor of God that gives us readiness. It gives us preparedness. And he says it is the gospel of peace. The, the gospel that brings us peace. You know what the gospel is. It, is. it is the message of Christ crucified for sinners. The gospel is the message of how wicked people who have made God their enemy can be reconciled to Him. It is the message of how we can go from being God's enemies to being God's children. It is the message of how we can be saved from God's righteous wrath and brought into His glorious mercy. It is the message of how we can go from having God against us to having God for us. And how does all this happen? How can any of this possibly happen? What must we do to earn this reconciliation with God? Well, there's nothing we can do. And yet it's given to us as a free gift in Jesus Christ. All we are called to do is acknowledge our need for it, hate our sin, and turn to Jesus. God's Son did everything necessary so that all we have to do is turn from our sins and look to Him and immediately God's justice towards us and our sin has been satisfied at the cross. His wrath has been put away and His fatherly love and care is upon us forever. When we rest in Jesus Christ, this is putting on the gospel of peace. He is the way, the truth, and the life. People come to the Father only through Him. And when we look to Christ, and when we rest in Him, when we have put on the gospel, the result is peace. Peace with God, right? We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
And because we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, that produces what in our hearts? Peace, right? Doesn't that bring a, a calm assurance in your soul? I am resting in Jesus. And because I'm resting in Jesus and I'm right with God and the promises are mine, therefore I have peace in my heart through whatever is happening today. And because I have peace in my heart, because of what I, ha- what I have in Jesus Christ, now in my relationships went up with others. When they begin to treat me badly or, or say bad things about me or sin against me, I can be quick to forgive, quick to show mercy, quick to love. I can have peace in my relationship. But it all begins by putting on the gospel. But when we have put on the gospel, when we are putting on the gospel every day, when we are learning to rest in Christ every moment, well, then the result is that we are a person, peace in our heart, a desire to maintain peace with others. And therefore, we are what Paul called ready, (laughs) prepared for the challenges that come our way. We're wearing our gospel shoes, and therefore we are prepared. Is that you? Have you learned to rest in your Savior every day, finding peace in Him so that whatever trials come tomorrow, you are ready? We're to be trained men, trained women. Last lesson. Last lesson I want to draw out of our passage this evening is that God's children should have courage in doing what is right. Abram doesn't just send out the 318 men of his household along with his allies. The picture is one of Abram leading them. He led them out. Abram knew that what he was doing was right. He was doing this out of obedience to the principles of God. And so with the comfort of knowing that his God cared for him, with the comfort of the promises God had made to him, Abram was able to go out in confidence, with valor, and with bravery. There is no hint anywhere in this passage of hesitation on Abram's part in doing what was right. As Christians, it takes courage sometimes to do the right thing. It takes courage to go to that person and admit that you were wrong and ask for forgiveness. It can take courage to go to someone knowing that you need to gently admonish them and knowing that they might not like what you have to say. It can take courage to stand up for truth when everybody else in the room thinks you're wrong. You ever been there? Sometimes it takes courage for children to go to their parents and admit that they've done something wrong. I can remember numerous examples when I was a kid of being so scared to tell mommy and daddy what I just did. It takes courage to do the right thing. The Christian life requires courage, and it is a courage that can only be found by knowing we are safe and secure in the hands of an awesome God. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.8, Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. What was the source of his courage? The expectation that whatever may happen to me now, I'm headed to be with Jesus. Knowing that being with the Lord forever is ahead of you means that even death should not scare you. Henry VIII of England 
wanted to break away from the Roman Catholic Church. He wanted to break away from the Roman Catholic Church because the Pope would not give him the divorce he wanted from his wife. He would not declare the divorce he wanted lawful. King Henry VIII wanted a son, and he wanted a son badly. He had become convinced that his wife, Catherine, was not going to give him a son. And so he wanted to divorce her and take another wife, Anne Boleyn. At the same time, men in England influenced by Martin Luther, had started proclaiming that Christians needed to return to the Bible, that there needed to be a breakaway from the Roman Catholic Church so that the Word of God, rather than the Pope or tradition, would rule over them. And even though Henry VIII was not at all convinced by what the Reformed folks were saying, he liked that they wanted to break away from the Roman Catholic Church because that's what he wanted too. The difference was they wanted to break away from the Roman Catholic Church out of obedience to Scripture. He wanted to break away from the Roman Catholic Church in order to be unfaithful and immoral. You see the difference. Well, in the end, Henry VIII led England not only to break away from the Catholic Church, but he made himself the head of the Church of England and used his power not only to divorce his first wife, but to go on to divorce and behead Five wives. Only his last one outlived him. They weren't all beheaded. Some were, he just divorced others. He divorced and beheaded. So here is a king living in rampant sin. And this king, because of these Reformation preachers' desire to break away from the Roman Catholic Church, they have some affinity with him. And so, so he invites this man named Hugh Latimer to come to his court and even to preach for him. Hugh Latimer is a great example of Christian courage in doing what is right. First, on New Year's Day, Hugh Latimer appears before the king and he gives him a Bible as a New Year's Day gift with the leaf turned down on the page in the Bible that included Hebrews 13.4. Do you remember what Hebrews 13.4 says? Let me read it to you. Let marriage be held in honor among all. Let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. What a brave thing to give the king who at any moment can order your head to be chopped off. It was considered high treason to in any way diminish the dignity of the king. Then... At another date, he was asked to preach for the king. He stood in the pulpit, and from the Scriptures, he openly denounced the wicked immorality of King Henry VIII. He did this publicly. The king was sitting right in front of him. The king responded by demanding that he come back the next Sunday and renounce everything he had said the the previous Sunday. So the following Sunday, Hugh Latimer comes into the pulpit, He announces he's going to preach from the very same text as the week before. And then, out loud, where everybody could hear him, he said this. He spoke to himself. And he said, Hugh Latimer, dost thou know before whom thou art this day to speak? To the high and mighty monarch, the king's most excellent majesty, who can take away thy life if thou offendest. Therefore take heed that thou speakest not a word that might displease. And then consider well, Hugh, 
Dost thou not know from whence comest thou? Upon whom's message thou art sent? Even by the great and mighty God, who is all present, who beholdeth always, and who is able to cast thy soul into hell. Therefore, take care that thou deliverest thy message faithfully. Do you hear what he was saying? <laughs> he basically, just to bring it into Justin's countrified English, here, here's what he was saying. Hugh Latimer, see who it is you're about to preach before. The king himself, who if you offend him, he can take your life. Be careful what you say. Oh, Hugh Latimer, remember who sent you here and whose message you've been entrusted with. God, who is everywhere and sees all things and has the power not just to cut off your head, but to cast your soul into hell. Therefore, be sure you are faithful to preach the truth. And then he took his passage and he went on again to denounce the immorality of King Henry VIII. Everyone thought that he would die that day. <laughs> the, the, the general expectation was that he would not live to see that night. But King Henry VIII did not kill him. In fact, it wasn't until the reign of Bloody Mary that he and a fellow reformer named Nicholas Ridley were burnt together at the stake. I haven't traveled many places, but a few years ago I did get to go to Oxford, England to the Martyrs Memorial where they mark uh, the, the general area where this took place. Latimer and Nicholas are, are on the stakes. We're talking home. No, I'm just kidding. We're, we're fine. Um, Nicholas and Latimer are at the stake. And they are about to be burnt. And we're told that Latimer cried out, Be of good comfort, Master Ridley. Be the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. Within 25 years, the Puritan movement had truly begun in full force. Within a hundred years, there were hundreds of gospel-believing Protestant churches in England. Proverbs 28.1 says, The wicked flee when there is no one pursuing, but the righteous are bold as a, as a lion. It's the kind of courage we're to have. Trusting in God, committed to doing what is right, we can have courage in the face of difficulty. That's what we see exemplified in Abram here in Genesis 14, and it should move us to have courage as well. So, let me close with this. Is not Abram in this passage at least not a little shadow of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our Savior could have sat idly by with us in captivity. Our Savior could have said, they made their beds, I'm going to let them lie in it. Our Savior could have pointed out how we had treated His Father, how we had failed to honor God, how we had failed to, to live up to the commands of God. But that is not what Jesus did. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He came to our rescue. He came to us by His Spirit and set us free from our captivity to sin. Even now, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, sitting at the right hand of God, has sent His Spirit into this world and into the hearts of us who are believers. And right now, He is freeing us from sin in our lives. He is our Savior, our Rescuer, the Captain of our salvation. And in some sense, Abram's actions here remind us of Jesus' second coming. 
when Jesus will come with His allies, the angels, the saints who have gone before, and He will come in judgment against those who have taken us captive in this world, all those who have sought to do harm to His church. And He will bring judgment against them. But His church, He will rescue. That where He is, we may always be. There's a Rich Mullen song that says, My Deliverer is coming. My Deliverer is standing by. He will never break His promise. Though the stars should break faith with the sky, My Deliverer is coming. My Deliverer is standing by. When Paul taught those things to the Thessalonians, he he talked about the Lord Jesus coming on that last day to rescue the church from this sinful world and to bring judgment on this world, to make it new, that we will live with Him in a new heavens and a new earth. And then Paul said, therefore, encourage one another with these words. Does it encourage you to think about these things? Does it encourage you to think that our Deliverer is coming? For your good the good of Christ's kingdom and God's glory. Take heart, for our Deliverer is coming as well. Those are five lessons. I hope they will be helpful to you. I hope that God will make them beneficial to us. Let's pray.